Well, humanity is on a quest for community. This is because there's an insatiable hunger inside of people to find their people. We see this in big ways and in small ways. As people create group identity and set their hope upon something bigger than themselves together. And we see this in ourselves and in the world around us, don't we? We identify with and find our people through a career or a trade, through educational groups, through universities, through favorite teams, the Seahawks or my home state's LA Dodgers. Fraternities, gangs, HOAs, political groups, gender-oriented groups, religious communities that are monotheistic, polytheistic, and ironically, atheistic. We find our people through interest groups, cause groups, dietary groups, art-based groups that are gathered around film or author or genre or television. And it's fascinating how there's typically a sign, a badge or a symbol that pairs with that community, a flag or a badge. We see this in family crests, team logos, gang signs, symbols like the pink ribbon symbol, our own EBC tree symbol. We see this in national, state, group, and cause flags like the American flag, the Washington flag, or the Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter flags. We have insatiable desire to find our people, declare allegiance, and build community around us, a community that we can identify with a community that we can give ourselves to and place our hope in together. Alas, earthly communities come and go, don't they? Trends and brands flow in and out with the tide. With each passing decade, focus groups become refocus groups. Communities flounder with fickle leadership and interests change conveniently with cash flow. And in the end, communities come in and they go with the tide. But what sets the church apart? What sets the church apart is a radically unique community. What binds and bounds the church, the people of God, together? And what is the sign, the symbol, the crest of the church? Well, this morning we are returning to our occasional series in 1 Peter, titled Pilgrim Hope, and we're going to answer these questions with the Lord's help, with the guidance of the Spirit and the Word this morning. So please open your Bible to 1 Peter. You'll find the letter right after James and right before 2 Peter. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under the seat near you. 
I'll be reading out of the ESV translation this morning, the same translation as our chair Bible. We're going to be in chapter 1, verse 13, through 2, verse 12. So 1 Peter 1, 13, through chapter 2, verse 12. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this passage this morning. This is God's good and enduring word. Let's read this. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. If, I, if you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is God's word. He is worthy to be praised. Let's say that together. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father, we praise you for your living, active, and enduring word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would turn the lights on in our hearts and minds, that we would see the glorious risen Christ more clearly this morning from your word. Lord, we do ask that we would not just be informed, but that we would be transformed by your word. And Lord, I ask that you would strengthen your weak servant to proclaim your word faithfully. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning, here is the main idea of the passage. The new covenant church is the most extraordinary and unique community in the world. The new covenant church is the most extraordinary and unique community in the world. And this is because the church is a community that is made up of a holy people, a loving people, and a new people. A holy people, chapter 1, verse 13 through 21. A loving people, chapter 1, 22 through 25. And a new people, chapter 2, 1 through 12. So point one, a holy people. And this will be one of my longer points this morning. So let's walk through these verses. Starting there with verse 13. Anytime we see the word, therefore, we should ask, what's it there for? Peter uses this adverb in order to connect the previous part of the letter to our passage this morning. And in verses 1 through 12, as you may recall from our last sermon together in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, Peter called the church to rejoice with living hope in the God of our salvation. And in order to boldly declare this about God and to God, Peter wanted us to grasp our identity as elect exiles. He wanted us to grasp our inheritance that is kept for us in heaven, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And he wanted us to grasp our inexpressible joy, our living hope, our living joy that is grounded in our living Savior. And then we arrive at verse 13, and, and Peter shifts and says, now that you know who you are in Christ, and now that you know what you have in Christ, here is how you should live in this world. And he writes, starting there with verse 13, prepare your minds and be sober-minded. And he says, be obedient and holy and conduct yourselves with fear. It's verses 14 through 17. And live as those who have been ransomed in the precious blood of Jesus. That's what we see in verses 18 through 21. So let's walk through these. First, prepare your minds and be sober-minded. Verse 12. A while ago, I, I saw a viral video 
of a young boy sitting in a classroom about to take a test. And the textbook was out in front of him, and he was doing this. <laughs> Eyes closed, trying to get all of the content of the text into his mind before he took the test. He's trying to fill his mind with the content of the book so, so he would do well on the test and do well in the class. And similarly, Peter is telling the church to do just that here. Prepare your minds with what I've told them, what I've told you. Prepare them for action so that you can endure as exiles on a pilgrimage heavenward. He's saying, prepare your mind, stay alert. And this is not new for the church. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells the church to engage the Christian life with our minds. He says, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. Paul, writing to the church in Rome and to us today, tells the church to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And here's where this text hits us today. Since the age of enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries, the church has become more and more infatuated with an experiential Christianity that is based in feelings and emotions. And I don't, I don't want you to hear me wrong. Feelings and emotions and experiences are pivotal to the Christian life. Yes. But this has subtly and not so subtly hurt the church in many ways. So how does Peter's exhortation impact us here at EBC? How are we preparing our minds for action and pursuing spiritual sobriety? Well, we take seriously what we hear, what we sing, and what we read. What we hear matters. This is why we preach the word and gospel weekly to stir the heart and the mind to greater affection. What we sing also matters. This is why we don't sing songs with unbiblical content or with mindless repetition, but instead sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that are robust and theologically rich, that feed the heart and the mind. This, is also, goes, this also goes for what we read and how it matters. This is why we as a church have a Bible reading plan. This is also why we have a bookstall that's going to be coming soon, a bookstore that will be coming soon with, with books to feed the heart and the mind in Christ. We do all of this so that we, meet, that we may, as Peter states in the second half of verse 13, set our hope fully on the grace of Christ that will be revealed when he returns. God gave us minds. He gave us minds that are meant to be filled with Christ and filled with the word and not drunk on the things of this world. Are you preparing your mind daily and setting your hope on the grace 
of Christ. Peter presses on there in verses 14 through 17. Peter calls the church to be obedient and holy and to conduct ourselves with fear. In an anti-authoritative world, this exhortation is radical. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Peter calls the church here to have a childlike obedience to God the Father and to be conformed to holiness and not worldly ignorance or the futile ways of man. And quoting Leviticus 20, Peter calls the church to be holy as God is holy and to fear him as the impartial or unbiased judge of our conduct and our actions. To say that God is holy is to say that he is fully other, perfect, and sinless, pure. And to fear him is nothing more than to recognize him as that. To recognize him for who he is. That is what it is to fear the Lord. And if we are indeed Christians, children of God, then we are called to be holy in this text. See, our relationship to God ought to impact the way we live. If we are his, then our lives, our loves, our allegiances ought to reflect that. If you're married, your love, your eyes, your affections are meant to be for one woman, your spouse. Or one man, your spouse. And that is what God demands of us. He wants all of us. He wants our heart, our minds, our eyes, our affections. So how are you doing? What are you conforming to? Peter says in verse 17 that we will be judged according to our actions. They'll be judged according to what we are conforming too. And we are meant to feel the weight of that. As I was working through this text, I was forced to ask the question, what do my own actions reflect? What do your actions reflect? Peter isn't calling the world to holiness. Pagans are going to peg. He's calling the church to holiness. So are you pressing into holiness and pushing away pride and deceit? Are you pressing into holiness and pushing away anger and animosity? Are you pressing into holiness and pushing away the idols of this world? Are you pressing into holiness and pushing all forms of sexual immorality, pornography, away. These, these sins are weapons of mass destruction. And they aim to kill us. Are you pursuing holiness? Beloved, the church is the most extraordinary and unique community in the world when we are pursuing and walking together in holiness. We don't do this alone. We do this with the church. So may we, with 
with the help of God, as it says in James 1, not just be hearers of this word, but that we would be doers of it. This is key. This is key. We need to recognize, though, that we cannot pursue holiness. We cannot do this work on our own strength or our own power. No, we do this work of holiness upon what has been done in Jesus Christ. And that's why Peter goes there next. Verses 18 through 21, this is where Peter goes. He calls the church to live as those who have been ransomed in the blood of Jesus. Peter is pulling this language from the Old Testament. You don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 12, we read of the Passover. In that text, God is about to judge Egypt, and God commands his people to take a lamb without blemish, without spot, to kill it, and to sprinkle the blood of that lamb, that perfect lamb, on the doorposts of their house. So that when God comes down to judge, he will pass over that home because it's marked by the blood of the lamb. You see what Peter is telling us as the new covenant church here in this passage, in these verses. He calls the church to know its place as those who have been ransomed by Christ, the lamb without blemish or spot. He is reminding the church, both Jew and Gentile, that we are to fear the Lord and pursue holy conduct and put away the passions of our former ignorance and the futile ways of the world and the perishable things of this life. And he is saying that we do all of these things upon what has been done in the crucified Christ. Beloved, if you are living a life of ongoing repentance and faith in Christ, then on judgment day, God will pass over us, not because of the work that we've done, not because of the intensity of our faith or the intensity of our fear or the intensity of our holiness. No, Jesus, because of Jesus, God is going to pass over us because the blood of the lamb is sprinkled on the doorposts of our hearts. Jesus took the judgment for us and therefore brought us and bought us into a new covenant that is better than the old. This is our salvation. This is our assurance. This is our hope. As Peter writes there, in verse 21. Isn't that good news? And if you're here today and you are pursuing futile hope, fleeting hope in this world, then hear the invitation from Christ here. Hear the invitation from, from God's word. Christ invites you to a new hope, a better hope through his life and his death, his resurrection and his ascension and his promised return. If you have questions about that, I would love to talk with you about it. Pastor Jeff would love to speak with you about it. The other elders here at the church would love to speak with you about that. I'll be standing in the back. We'll be standing in the back after the service. Come, come find me. I'd love to talk with you more about Jesus and what he does for sinners. But beloved, if you are in Christ... 
part of his new covenant people, then there is no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And that is our hope. Brothers and sisters, the cross of Christ is our family crest, isn't it? That's why we have one right here. This is our family crest. And it separates us and has marked us from the world. And it makes us an extraordinary and unique community. But there's more. Where there is sober-mindedness, where there is obedience and, and fear of God, where there is purity, faith, and there is new hope, where there is a people marked by the cross and resurrection, the empty cross and resurrection of Jesus, there is the pursuit of godly love. So point two, a loving people. The church is a loving people. Let's, let's look at that together. Verses 22 through 25. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincerely brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass. In all its glory, like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Remember, thus far in the letter, Peter has told the church who they are in Christ and what they have in Christ. And he's been telling us how we are to live in this world as Christians, as elect exiles. exiles. And what Peter does here is beautiful because he moves from godly holiness through the cross to godly love. I'm sure you've heard the statement Love is love. When I was pursuing my undergrad degree down in California, there was a movement on my university campus called the Safe Zone Movement. It was a program, a movement that had a roster of allies and a list of resources and, and safe bathrooms and safe classrooms on campus that are a part of the Safe Zone Movement. And throughout the campus, you would find classrooms and you would find administrative offices marked with a badge, a triangle that said LGBTQ safe zone. And this community had a purpose statement, a badge and a slogan, love is love. But in the life of this community, it was so much more than just a slogan. It was the foundation of a worldview. At its center is a definition of, of love, of worldly love. A love that is grounded in the fleeting and fickle desires of earthly affection. A love that doesn't pursue its others, doesn't pursue others, but pursues its own pleasure and self-interest. But Peter here is calling us to a higher love, a bigger understanding of love. Again, our relationship with God changes the way we live. It changes the way we love. And that love is an overflow of God's saving work in and through us. He then says, Peter then says, interesting statement there in the opening 
of verse 22, doesn't he? He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love. We should be thinking, wait, hold on, what? I thought I was elect, Peter. I didn't know I was purified through obedience. I thought I was purified in the blood of Jesus. Isn't the work done? Peter's answer, yes, the work is done. If we are in Christ, then we are born again. That's what he says in verse 23. Not of perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed. But just as we saw in, that last, in this last section here, we do the work of pursuing holiness upon the finished work of Jesus and his perfect holiness. And here, Peter is saying something similar. We do the work of love, of loving one another earnestly and fervently and constantly upon the love of Jesus, the sacrificial love of God in Christ for sinners. So what does it mean, though, to love one another earnestly, to love one another deeply and fervently and constantly and sacrificially? It means to have a committed love, a love that lasts through thick and thin, through sickness and in death. It's a, a committed love that lasts in the midst of differences and preferences. For God's people, love isn't a choice. It's a commitment. This is why we take fidelity to the word of God so seriously here. This is why we, we take how God has defined love so seriously here. This is why we take membership so seriously here. Because we can't love one another well unless we have committed to one another in this life. And we see this in the local church. Peter is calling us to an extraordinary and unique kind of love. An enduring love that sprouts up and grows and blossoms in the soil of the enduring word. That's what we see in those verses from 24 or 20, the end of 23 all the way through 25. In the word, the enduring word, enduring love grows. A love that is not based upon our fleeting moments, our fleeting desires, but a love that is based in the enduring word that doesn't wither, it doesn't fade, but lasts forever and will last forever. And it says, Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you are my community in how you love one another. Oh, beloved, if, if we abide in Christ and abide in Christ-like love, then we will abide faithfully in God's life-giving, love-propelling word. And as elect exiles, members here at EBC made up of those who have lived out a committed love to one another horizontally because of that vertical love that God has shown us in Christ. When we live out that love, we display a unique and compelling and extraordinary love. A love that leads and forms a new people. And that's what we see in the next section, in, in, in Peter's 
final point there in chapter 2, 1 through 12. So let's look at that together now. Point 3, a new people. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Here's Peter's equation. A holy people, a holy new covenant people covered in the precious blood of Christ that bear the cross as their family crest plus a fervently loving people that are, gra- that, is grounded, that are grounded in the enduring word equals a new people, a new community. This flows out of holiness and out of love and out of what the Lord has done through the gospel. And we see this in, in verse 1 of chapter 2 where there's this kind of love, there is an active putting away of malice deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Peter's stance is that there is absolutely no room for these in the people of God. We cannot be a living and thriving part of God's new people and simultaneously live in the darkness of the world with unrepentant malice, unrepentant deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander in our lives. These things are a sickness that eat away at holiness, that eat away at love, that eat away at this life, that eat away at the church. And ultimately, they reflect our spiritual diet. That's what we see from Peter here in these verses. You've heard the statement, you are what you eat. Other than the fact that it's a logical fallacy, because you have to be something in order to eat something, I digress. There's truth to this old adage. If we are always eating spiritual junk food, then we are going to be spiritually unhealthy. If we eat good nourishing food, that's food from the storehouse of God's enduring word, then we are going to grow. If we consume the world, we are going to become the world and bear its marks, malice, 
deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, if we consume the pure spiritual milk from the word, and if we have indeed tasted that the Lord is good by faith, then we are going to grow up in salvation to be mature and healthy Christians. So take an inventory of your spiritual pantry and fridge. Well, here in verses 4 through 12, Peter makes a, a spiritual and metaphorical turn. He just connected our life in God to our diet, and he encouraged us to fuel our bodies with the word, with that pure spiritual milk that we may be built up individually and together. But here, Peter puts on his builder PPE, his personal protective equipment, and he speaks to the body of Christ as an architect, a builder, and tells the church that they are not only a holy people and a loving people, but that they are a completely new people. And he presses further into the metaphor and says there in verse 5 of chapter 2, that the New Covenant, New Testament church is made up of a holy priesthood, people who are living stones being built up into a spiritual house where spiritual sacrifices, not of blood and bulls and goats, but of worship, service, and allegiance to Christ are acceptably made to God through Jesus. Peter's point, the New Testament church through Christ is the house of God, the dwelling place of God. And where is Peter getting all this imagery? He's getting it from the Old Testament. He's getting it from Scripture, from the enduring word. For we read there in, back in, in the Old Testament that God dwelled with his people through structures in the beginning. We can trace God's structural dwelling with his people from Genesis to the Gospels through to 1 Peter and then to Revelation. You don't have to turn there with me now, but please write these passages down maybe for later study and discussion. In the garden, God dwelled with his people, but there was separation because of sin. We see that in Genesis 1 through 3. The holy cannot live with the unholy. But by God's grace, love, and mercy in Exodus 25, we read these words, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God's people at this point in redemptive history and in Exodus are living in tents. And so God chooses to meet them where they are and to live in a tent tabernacle, a house with them. And God dwelt with his people once again. But then we fast forward to 1 Kings 8 and we see the people of God and we see God trade the tent tabernacle for a temple. We read where Solomon builds that temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. Alas, physical structures don't last forever, right? And so we see in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, we see God through Christ dwell with his people. We read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then in chapter 2, we read that Jesus himself calls himself the temple. So what do we see happening here in the storyline of Scripture? Jesus is the better dwelling place of God. He is the better temple. And after his ascension, he promised that he would send the better one, the Spirit, to fill and dwell in and with his people. 
And we see this over the course of the book of Acts. And this makes sense of what we read here in 1 Peter, doesn't it? It makes sense. For now the church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit through Christ. As we read in these verses, as we read in verse 5, God made his house and dwelled his people with his people through structures in the Old Testament. But then in the New Testament, he dwelled with his people through the Son, Jesus. And after he ascended, he promised his spirit to fill and live with his people, to dwell with his people. So now God dwells in the saved. From structure to the Son to the saved, God dwells and lives with his people. Isn't that incredible? So let's look at how Peter unpacks this truth. In verse 4, Peter calls the church then and now living stones, chosen and precious. Verse 5, Peter proclaims the church is being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices. In verse 6, Peter quotes Isaiah 28 and tells the church that God has laid a cornerstone, a foundation that is chosen and precious. Isaiah was writing of Jesus, the cornerstone, and any living stone that is a part of him and built upon him through belief in him will not be put to shame. Then in verse 7, Peter tells the church that through God's people under the old covenant and the people of the world that there are those who have rejected Christ. Even under the old covenant and presently in the world that there are those who reject him. And yet there is honor for those living stones that believe. And then in verse 8, Peter presses in even further. He says that Christ has become a stumbling block. The stone of, of rejection, a tripping hazard for those who do not believe. For those who reject the word and the word made flesh and reject the good news that Peter spoke of back in verse 25. And they rejected according to God's sovereignty as they were destined to do. And then verse 9, Peter doesn't leave it there. He offers assurance to the church. He offers that same assurance that he spoke of back in, well, the whole letter thus far. He offers assurance to the church and, and he, he speaks to those redeemed Jews and Gentiles and he tells them that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession and he dwells with and in them. And the church has made all of this by God's grace, for God's glory, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. That's what we're doing here this morning. As we read the word and we hear the word, as we sing the word, that's what we're doing. We are proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus. And Peter is pulling all of this imagery from what Pastor Jeff read earlier in Deuteronomy 7, where we read these words, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. EBC, he's talking about us. Peter here is talking about us. It's almost too good to be true. What grace, what love, and what Mercy. Can we just stop for a moment and let that truth wash over us? If we are a Christian, if we are made new in Christ, then, then we are redeemed, we are chosen, and we are precious. 
that no matter what comes from the world, the flesh, and the devil, that no matter what comes our way, we are gods and nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we can live as sojourners and exiles before a watching world knowing. This is how Peter closes this section of the letter, circling back to where he starts. So we can live out our faith before a watching world that they may believe. That they may see our good deeds and turn to Christ as we look toward the day of visitation. Even as we are slandered and demeaned and hated and canceled, we are to live holy lives and loving lives in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that display the extraordinary and unique and compelling grace of God to the world around us. Well, we should close. This passage calls pilgrims like you and I to extraordinary holiness, to extraordinary love, to an extraordinary identity and purpose as the new people of God. And we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house of God upon the cornerstone, upon Jesus And beloved, God is doing this work today. He's doing this work now in the world through Christ by spirit and word. And the gates of hell, the world, the flesh, and the devil will never prevail against that work. He will not prevail against the Lord's work. And we have a promise of that in Scripture. We have a promise of that in our text. And this is our new and lasting Hope Church. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you as the God who redeems. I ask that you would make us a holy people and a loving people, that you would cause us to live in light of the new people that you have made us. And we ask that that what we have not that you would give us, what we know not that you would teach us, and that what we are not you would make us for our good and for your glory. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.